there's an evolution in the meditation practice <clears throat> in which it changes from being a very autocratic system where I, in my efforts, <clears throat> really it, that sustains itself, at least it did in my case, for a considerable length of time. Because it was the only energy I knew that could be relied upon. <clears throat> and it was the only place I could place my faith. Since I wasn't about to take any new, new age speak, I was going to, I was going to, this was going to be a self-made project. And so I, with the force of that will, I would do things like close myself in closets for a weekend. <laughs> I was going to break this thing. I'm not suggesting this, by the way. <laughs> I'm showing you the wrong attitude here. <clears throat> but I, I wanted to power myself into something. I, it was as if I was trying to escape my own skin. Uh, and it wasn't all uh, a, a sense of, ex- of escape. It was equally a motivation of urgency and urge and passion that I didn't know, it, I couldn't, it just unleashed itself in, on a particular day, actually. And then I, it, couldn't, it couldn't be contained. And so when it came out, I, the only thing I knew to do was to try very, very hard. And I did. And I, uh, at some point, uh, years later, actually broke down. I I broke down because of the exertion of that effort. It can't be sustained. It it broke me. And uh, and you come out, and uh, there's an awkward time that can last um, a considerable length of time when you don't know how to come back into the practice because you can't come back in through your own musculature. And you don't know what else could sustain you because that's the only thing that has ever sustained us. And you can't call upon something else because you don't know what that something else is. And at this point, uh, for many people I've noticed retrospectively, um, they can stop sitting. They become cynical about their sitting. And they say to themselves, essentially, there's nothing to this. It doesn't mean that that period of time didn't have its value, but its greatest value was showing us the end of effort. That's its greatest value. However, it's the other uh, values, there are other um, less important uh, learnings, such as the mind steadies itself through that kind of will. There's no question. And there's a tremendous sense of discipline and resolve. 
So it's not all bad. None of it's bad, really. It's just if we have learned the lessons in which we have uh, used a particular force, volitional force, to its nth degree, and then it backfires on us. We have to learn the lessons of that. And one of the ways I now teach is to learn that lesson earlier than I did. I don't want people to have to go through that. You see, let's just look practically. Even from day one, you can get some sense of what I'm saying. When we sit down uh, and we start following the breath, many of us feel that we are responsible for the mistake of having lost our attention on the breath and started to think. But is that true? Did we deliberately, I mean, we can, but most of us are sincere enough that we were taken away from the breath. It wasn't as if we asked that to happen. It's just we find ourselves in thought. So that really isn't our responsibility. It's not a mistake we're making, is it? Now here's something a little more subtle. What wakes us out of thought? You see, we, after the fact, we take responsibility for it. But if you look at what happens at the moment in which we come back, it wasn't your volition at all. You find yourself back and then shake yourself and say, oh, right, got to get back on the breath, after the fact that you've awakened. So, in fact, both the leaving of the breath And the returning to it has nothing to do with you. So what does it have to do with? Because something is working there. So we better get a sense of what that something is so that we can utilize it. That something is intentionality. You see, intentionality is far different than what we think it is, some kind of volitional uh, wanting or desire, okay? And we think we can uh, kind of artificially induce it, say, you know, I really want this, and inside we're mixed on what we really want. But it's not that. It's an energetic alignment with something far beyond our will or volition. It's an energetic uh, response. And that energetic response remains whether we are consciously attending to it or not. What wakes us up is that energetic response. And that energetic response is inherent in all of us. In fact, there is a primary intentionality in every single person that walks the planet. That primary intentionality 
that is there, if we can uncover it sufficiently, is an intentionality to come back home, to return. It can be framed in countless different ways. Some people in a devotional aspect will think of it in terms of of returning to the beloved. Christians will think about returning to Christ's heart or coming back to God. It doesn't really matter how we frame it. It's that which keeps spirituality alive on the planet. It can't die because there's no way, because that's a primary intentionality, there's no way to completely lose sight of that thing. And each one of us have that here. You're not without it. You may be adrift, but you're not without, no one is. You're not missing any part. You're not missing any ingredient. Now, have you, I mean, some of the, um, I was just attending in Seattle, uh, Krishna Das, who comes through once a year, and we do chanting together. It's wonderful. And austere Buddhists don't like to get too emotionally indulgent, so there weren't very many of us there, but I went. <laughs> and I shri-rommed myself. And <laughs> and uh, you know, it, it, time passes very quickly. It's beautiful, just beautiful. And what I realized was that it was accessing that primary intentionality. Beautiful, beautiful. And people were really coming into that primary intentionality and whatever directionality they took in terms of the view they had for that primary intentionality, be it love or whatever, took that form in, in the singing uh, and so I was just watching people as they were leaving in this tremendous heart-centered place. But then I watched them as they left and how they came down from that primary intentionality. One person in particular got in his car and started to turn out from his parking place and a, a car that of another person who had been in the uh, chanting had to break very suddenly as this person was pulling out. And he rolled down his windows and honked his horn and yelled something <laughs> at the <laughs> which got the other guy up, you know. And that lasted, the primary intentionality lasted until the horn honked. Does that sound familiar? Because the understanding wasn't there. You see, that we have to understand what covers over the primary intentionality for it to remain kind of a bare yearning. The bare yearning doesn't go away, people. It doesn't go away. It gets more intense. You get hungrier. Until you're willing to give anything to the feast. Anything. That's Rumi and Hafiz and... Kabir, those are the absolute hungers in song and in poem, poetry.
where you feed anything into it. It doesn't matter, you see. Anything that gets in the way, it becomes the most important thing. And so you're willing to feed anything into it. You see, that's the only thing that is the salvation. It has to be, right? Because we would pull back in reluctance and fear if fear were more primary than this intentionality. And so fear would then become the precedent, would become the primary, and we would then stay on the safe. But we were even willing at some point to release or to, to offer the fear up to this primary intentionality. And that's salvation. I'm interested in that. So how do we how do we how do we find ourselves to that? If everyone has it by the bare fact that they we are alive, and the view which feeds that is the view of interconnectedness. The more we connect to ourselves and with the world, and the more affected we are by life, I'm saying it in a different way now, the more that primary intentionality resonates. And the more disconnected we are, the more we turn away in aversion or an end to separation, the less that primary intentionality resonates. So the view we hold of what we're doing is primarily responsible for the resonance that we have within our practice of that primary intention. The problem is most of us practice with the wrong view. And so we get stuck in what I call a secondary intentionality, which is self-gain. Self-gain is a disconnect, and I say this very gently, but if we're gaining, self-gaining, self-improving, we're actually working against the purpose of the practice in the sense that the perfect of the practice isn't about shoring up me. It's about connecting through me. In other words, you can't, you can't be somebody and be awake. You can't be somebody and work towards your awakening. That's what my early years were about. It doesn't work. It's counterindicated. That's why we emphasize on this course and many the, the heart, because the heart isn't about me. Is it? It takes us out of ourselves. And it's through the heart that that primary intention is most resonant. But most of us have a conflicting idea of what we want out of our practice. Perhaps the most important question you can ever ask of your practice, and if we ask it sincerely and seriously, is what do I want from this? Not do I what, what I would like to want, 
not to what I wish I would want, but what I actually want from this. But let me show you something. No matter where we are in relationship to that honesty, the honesty is a salvation because most of us don't have a fully resonant primary intention. We just don't. We have conflicting and mixed intentions. I want the I want freedom kind of. I don't really understand what that means, but it sounds good. I like contentment, love, those are nice. But I also want some comfort. I want to be soothed. Now you know that that's also part of your practice, isn't it? Times you was just want to, you know, this is good enough. But are we honest with that? With that intentionality? Because it's the honesty that will allow us to move through that secondary intentionality. And I'll explain how that is. Some of us find ourselves, perhaps many of us, in an addictive mode where we're obsessed with something in our life, obsessed with, it could be anything, chocolate. And we kind of... The way we work with attachments is is kind of strange. Uh, I don't know, you know, we kind of feel it and sort of deny ourselves of it sometime, and then we have some of it. And it's, it's not, how do we resolve this thing? It's like it's not clear how we resolve it, is it? How do you resolve an attachment? You see, we don't really know, do we? And somehow it's supposed to be resolved, but it's not. So here's my formula for the resolution. You have to be completely honest with the fact that this is what I want. Chocolate. And I'm just using that. You put your own substitution in there. And then throughout the desire you see the value of what you're getting from it. You don't deny the pleasurable aspect of it or what it seems to be offering you. You see the satiation. You see the pleasant quality of it. You're fully honest and attentive to the pleasant quality. And you're fully honest and attentive to its limitation. For something to burn itself out, both have to be seen. You cannot just go with one half the scale. And in that full honesty, it is promised that the limitation will outweigh the value. It may take a while for that to be understood. And but when that, like the change from a machine, when it drops... That's it. It's never, it's not, we haven't done anything except seen our way through. We haven't pulled back in some austerity, nor have we forgotten all about it and just self-indulged. But we have critically looked. See, the formula of Buddhism is that the value will never hold up to its limitation. That's the formula. That's the only reason this thing works. And so you can have some confidence 
that that will, in fact, if you keep your eyes open, we don't trust it, but if we keep our eyes open to it, it will fall away. We may have to do a lot of... I mean, there are a lot of things that we have to be aware of because oftentimes attachments and desires have a lot to do with self-image, and so it moves us back into the particular perception of ourself without something or with something that we have to also look at and the assumptions associated with that will go wherever the pain is. We just follow the pain. The pain line takes us right there. We look at it. You just keep making everything that's unconscious conscious. That's it. We don't have to do anything. Awareness does it all. We just have to allow ourselves the willingness to see what is hidden. And eventually, it starts weighing in, and things just drop away. So it's not even the sense of self that resolves the attachment. It's awareness. See, we're dropping more and more out of this thing. When we make it a self-made project, which many of us do, when we try to task our way through we're often being driven by the very pain that we refuse to see, the sense of self-unworthiness, the sense of wanting to be achievement, or the, the wanting to, be a, uh, to have an achievement, often from a sense of self-diminishment. But we refuse to look at that self-diminishment. We're just reacting to it and trying to achieve. We can do, spend our whole life, we can spend our whole practice trying to achieve, making it a task and a work ethic. Never, ever facing the crucial issue of our own, my own self-assumption. I have enormous faith that wherever my awareness goes, it will fall apart. Whatever that it sees, whatever it looks at, it will fall apart. So I can even go into self-assumptions with confidence, knowing that they will not stand the critical discernment of awareness. Is this true? Is it true what I'm saying to myself? It's amazing the power of that confidence. And I see people all day long in Seattle, and many of them, most of them, don't hold that confidence. So they sit across from me and they're reluctant to tell me their critical issue because it's they think I think I will think that they then I'll assume something an opinion about them. But it's not like that at all. The quicker they come to the resolution and are honest with it, the more we can really venture together into its own emptiness. So don't be afraid of those assumptions. Like the value of the secondary intentions, they just won't sustain themselves under the clarity of awareness. So there's nothing in us that we need to be afraid of. And it's the willingness to come forth with these things and to look at them that is the whole inspirational movement of the practice. But many of us get caught in a kind of... Well, we're, we're, we just... Our practice is going okay, according to the science of it. We can be on more breaths than we could last year. 
we have cultivated a certain something and we feel a greater sense of ease and and that into our you know we're but the but the boat is riding on the on you all of that is is real so the primary intention isn't going to be available periodically it is but critically this primary intention must be raw for us to awaken So the first thing is to orient our practice in the right direction so that we're not working towards self-gain. And then the second thing we have to do is to be willing to go wherever we need to go because our intentions will be mixed where we refuse to go. And in order to align everything to that primary intention, there can be no pain, mental, psychic pain within us that pulls us back into a different intention. So what does full-hearted mean? Because this is full-hearted intention. I use the term radical accountability. And I have a whole talk that you're welcome to take off the Dharma seed or wherever. But radical accountability, the primary intention depends upon radical accountability. Radical accountability is no longer um, offsetting our own problems onto the world. See, as long as I can blame or push my problem self onto other things, then I won't hold the resolution of the heart that the primary intention needs. And it's until I'm willing to admit that this world is my creation, my pain, this is my pain that's going on here. And it's not the boss's fault. It's not my spouse's fault. And it isn't the guy next door who has a barking dog. It's me. This is, I have to be completely responsible for my inward emotional life. Now, what we do often is we place that blame on us. Oh, it's me. And then it kind of drags us down. But with some discernment, you'll see that there's no one to blame in there either. We just have to hold it, be willing to hold it. Hold our emotional life. And that begins to line us up energetically. You can feel it. When there isn't leakage, where the world isn't problematic, there's no problem with reality. Reality is neutral. It's what I'm doing to it. And the realization of that. Suddenly, this tremendous sense of responsibility. And you can feel the heart just come into place. Come into alignment to itself. And then the willingness to face 
wherever the difficulties take us and to be accountable for all, for, for all the suffering and self-imposed. You see, this, what happens simultaneously to this is we get more and more interested as we begin to claim rightful responsibility for our suffering. You get, we get very interested in what we're doing to create that suffering. As long as I can say, you did this to me, if you would quit shuffling around next to me, I'd have a perfect meditation. I will never line up responsibly to that at all. But the moment I take that on energetically, there's a shift that occurs. And I get extraordinarily interested in where it is that I'm creating my suffering because now I'm taking responsibility for it. And as that interest grows, so does my attention. The samadhi factor. Samadhi grows best through interest. In fact, my teacher, Ajahn Buddha Dasa, would say, why don't you practice natural samadhi? What are you doing all this breath work? Just follow your natural interests, he would say. Because the heart starts coming up. When, at, once we've taken responsibility, the heart starts responding. Once we're on top, and the heart's main objective in life is to meet itself fully. Life meeting itself fully. So anywhere that there's a system blockage, ignorance in other words, it's on top of it. It wants to understand that. Not to eliminate it, but to understand it. To want to penetrate it. To look at it. To see it. What's going on here? And to ask critical and discerning questions of it. Is this true? What is this? And it starts going back into itself. What is this? What is this thing that keeps making problems? What is this? What, what is this? Because it sees when the sense of self is in full bloom and empowered and willfully controlling and ignorant to itself, all hell breaks loose and pain is everywhere. And it sees when that manifestation occurs that that is the embodiment of pain, of suffering, of resistance. And so it gets very interested in what this sense of self is because it is somehow connected to the pain that's arising. What is this? It's just, it's a natural question that comes. You see, the question that everyone wants to know is how can I go into, how can I carry this out of this? And what we don't realize is that we step on our own feet, that when we have an undistracted when our life doesn't have the enticements that encourage the secondary intentionality, the primary intentionality, like right now, becomes very sharp. It's very sharp in all of you. 
And so you're on top of yourself. You want to know, and there can be accompanying interest into what wanting to know. But you step out of here, and your the world of distractibility encourages that secondary intentionality, and we get lost within the worlds of form because we haven't been willing to pursue those worlds of form to its end. I, you know Jim Carrey, the comic, the guy. So I, I was seeing, an, I saw an interview uh, somebody was offering him after he'd become famous, and they asked him how he became famous. And he said, the first thing he did was he wrote out a check for, from himself to himself for $7 million, <laughs> because that's what the top actors at the time were making. And he put that check in his pocket, and he would go up into the Hollywood Hills, and on this overlooking the ho- Hollywood whatever, he would pump himself up with intentionality to be a great actor or to be an actor. He's not <laughs> and lo and behold, that's what befell. Because if you want to pump yourself into a, a particular vocation or uh, into anything, you can do that. That's the power of intentionality. It has a creative force. Energetically, it creatively forces that to come to be. And he was so single-minded in his secondary intentionality that he created, I mean, you know, he's he's an average actor, in my opinion. (laughs) And so, but, but the force of his intentionality was not anything but normal or average. So if you want to do that, I mean, there are how to win friends and influence. There's a thousand different ways that they have learned how to create intentionality to make yourself better, to improve your circumstances. And they work. I have no question. Because energetically, when you have that much intentionality to something, it brings that to the universe, comes to you in that way. There's no question. So as your mind gets sharper, your desires will be played out because as your mind gets clearer, your intentionality becomes focused. And the primary, the secondary intentions, the worldly intentions, let me say, that you haven't completely finished with are still in there and they will still be finding their circuitry of outlet. And that will come to pass. And that may be the only thing that will allow you to cease that particular desire is to get overflooded by that desire, overwhelmed by it. So you find as we go through this thing that more of your desires are being met. Look at your life. But is that what you want out of this? That's the fast track to heaven and to hell, but not to freedom. Because it's only the primary intention, absolutely pure primary intention, not 99 with 1% wanting chocolate. You see? You see what this is asking of us? But it's within our capability 
It is not something that's far away. Every one of us can observe our desires and see their limitations and see the value we're getting from it. Every one of us can be moving forward to this thing quickly once you catch on to how to do it. Forget the reincarnation stuff. Lifetimes. Forget it. It's a waste of time to think that way and a waste of this life. This is about awakening now. So why are our intentions so partial? Because it's more than just having mixed views and not sure what our view of life is and going off. And what are, and it just dawns on me, the same question is, why don't we show up for ourselves? And it's very obvious, isn't it, when we sit, why we don't show up? Because when a nice thought comes along, we're off playing with it. And we'd rather be entertained. We can see it. You can see it in every sitting, perhaps, many, many times, where the mind will flit off to instead of showing up. And those are all dispersions of energy. And you can't awaken with dispersions of energy. Its definition is wakefulness is full-hearted energy, full wakefulness, full aliveness. Also, our past plays such... See, all of these things have to be attended to. Our past plays in so heavily. We, we sit with such regret and such lack of forgiveness that part of our mind is back-dwelling and uh, kind of lost in the circumstances of our shame and our guilt. And each one of these is a separate Dharma talk, but... Here's a big one. The belief that I'm not ready. Don't do that to yourself. You're as ready as you want to be. You want this thing? You see, are we giving ourselves over to time? Or are we rising up out of it, out of the ashes, the phoenix arising? Right out. We stand up in the middle. Enough of this madness. You can even listen to the resound of Silent Night. Not the song, but the fact. That's what happens when you stand up. And many of us in this room are critically close and capable of standing.
But many of us get lost in the themes of our life and the playthroughs of our lack of forgiveness in our past and in our image becomes more important than, well, what if I do this, well, I have to give, how can I, the confusion of me and the confusion of what we want to retain as we wake up, what we want to still have as a part of me. And if I, will I have to, see, we bargain it. It's like the stages of grief. Or are we willing just to stand? And the doubt. Oh, what about the Dharma? I don't know about the Dharma. Is this all some kind of fiction? Or, you know? And what about me? I don't know. I can't know. God, I failed algebra. How am I supposed to do this? <laughs> we lead with our mistakes, not with our courage. And this requires something else. but not beyond anyone's ability. Never let a teacher or anyone throw you into your doubt. But that's it. The primary intention takes over. Not my will, because the energetic stream is so consistent, it becomes the universal energy. The limited self becomes the universal self. It was never about me. It was about my willingness to see the end of me. And that's all the primary intention needs. Waiting, thriving, always present, never diminished. And in the way we sit, the aliveness with which we sit, wholehearted, going anywhere, anything that comes in, doesn't matter. May it be so for all of us. Sit for a minute or two.
illness is so thick, it surrounds us. Asking nothing from us except our release. Asking nothing from us except where we're holding. To open our hand. To relinquish. That's all it's asking. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.